Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 1st. As promised, it's part two of our two Mini Break Monday, breaking down an exceptional championship weekend of action on the ATP and WTA tours. Of course, in part one of this podcast, I talked all about the WTA events we saw unfold in Warsaw and Prague. It was Caroline Garcia and Marie Buskova who ultimately ended up in the winner's circle and on part one. I wanted to discuss why each of those results feels relevant as we turn our attention towards the North American hardcourt summer. Given the success of Caroline Garcia over the past six weeks, it started with the French Open doubles title, translated onto the grass courts, then continued last week in Warsaw. Feels like the former world number four is perfectly primed to return to top 10, top 15 status. Certainly, she's serving well enough to make a case to be one of those players, but I wanted to explain why it's not just the serve, but every other element of Caroline Garcia's game that makes her particularly dangerous as we head towards this next six weeks of action. And then, of course, for Marie Buzkova, talk about a steady Eddie, a player who might be the litmus test for what it takes to be in the top 50, the top 35 on the WTA Tour over the next decade. I wanted to explain what makes Buzkova such a difficult matchup for just about any opponent. And then, of course, talk about how she ended up in the winner's circle in Prague. And by the way, wasn't just the title winners we focused on. We talked Garcia, Buzkova, of course, but had to get into a little Potapova, Naskova talk, and Jasmine Paulini was exceptional in Warsaw. She's been pretty damn solid over the past six weeks. We broke down all the WTA action, again, on part one of this two-mini break Monday, all of those thoughts available in the podcast, both wherever you listen to your shows or on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, here on part two, time to talk about what was truly, again, an exceptional weekend of ATP action. I wish I had a more expansive vocabulary to describe the weekend. The best word I can come up with was exceptional. And of course, we had arguably one of the five best matches of the year at an ATP 250 event and the last weekend of July. That happens from time to time. And certainly it's going to happen when you have two of the young premier talents competing against one another on court. And that's what we had in Yannick Sinner versus Carlos Alcaraz in Umag. The first set could not have provided more entertaining action. It was ultimately a 7 six set for Carlos Alcaraz. He built himself a 6-2 lead in the breaker center, works his way back to 6-5, blows what was, in my opinion, a very makeable put-away shot to ultimately seed the breaker to Carlos Alcaraz. From there, though, it was all the sin man. Yannick Sinner earning his first title of the 2022 season, a 6-7-6-1-6-1 victory over Carlos Alcaraz. You know I got to break down that match on today's show. In my opinion, 
opinion, Sinner Alcaraz is one of the five best rivalries on the ATP Tour, maybe across men's or women's tennis, and I'm going to explain why I feel that way. We'll talk about it more on Tuesday with Nate Walrath as well. I've been doing some pool testing as I've been seeing friends in Los Angeles. I'm actually back in Michigan now visiting my parents briefly as I don't think I'm going to have the chance to do that over the course of the next eight weeks, but I've been pool testing all of my casual tennis friends who know these players but don't follow the in and outs, aren't absorbed or don't find themselves trapped in the tennis intelligentsia bubble, as I like to think I find myself in. So I've been doing some field work for you listeners to try and get a finger on the pulse of how the tennis public feels. And the tennis public is as enthusiastic about Alcaraz and Sinner as I am. I want to talk again about why Sinner was able to get over the finish line, why you're a fool if you're selling any of your stock in Carlos Alcaraz. Although I suppose if you want a nice vacation here in 2022, you sell your Alcaraz stock, you can probably afford it. But that's a short-term gain, and you're missing out on a long-term benefit, so I'll explain why I feel no worse about Carlos Alcaraz moving forward. Talk about some of the other Italians, Agabanone in particular, Led Zeppelin, Giulio Zeppieri, who I thought was exceptional all week long in Umag. Plenty of for us to break down from that event. Of course, that was one of three ATP events. I'm doing two and a half minutes in the intro on Umag. Tells you why I had to divide uh, the RWT and ATP action into two separate parts here, two different podcast because otherwise you might have had a three-hour mega mini break Monday show, which wouldn't have been the worst. I just don't think it would have been my best work. That said, it wasn't just Umag. You had a fascinating chess match unfold in Atlanta. Alex Diemenauer winning, I believe, the sixth title of his career. Six titles for Alex Diemenauer. He's just 23 years old and yet back into the winner's circle for the second time in Atlanta. You look for Diemenauer who ultimately earns a 3-3 three and three victory over Jensen Brooksby. It was, again, the chess match. It was the game style Diemenauer employed when he was trailing early in the second set and found Jensen Brooksby gaining some momentum. Diemenauer's counter to quash that momentum for Brooksby was fascinating, and I'll get into what that counter was, why it not only continues to bring up the question, what is Alex Diemenauer's upside moving forward? But, of course, it brings back to the mind one of the questions of the 2021 season. What exactly is Jensen Brooksby's game? How high is his ceiling? How high is his floor? It feels like his game is so attackable, and yet he always just finds himself in winning positions at the end of the court. It remains the enigma that perhaps is most difficult to solve on the ATP Tour right now. As such, it remains fascinating. And yes, I'll talk about the Brooksby-LeBron celebration at the end of Tiafa. Why, if you know Jensen a little bit better, perhaps you'd be a little bit less upset that he went with that mode. Of course, not that I'm endorsing him making that decision, but we can talk about that on today's show and then talk a little Ilya Ivashka, a little Francis Tiafo action, why I was so enthused enthusiastic, so encouraged is the better word, for, for American men's tennis after watching the week of play that unfolded in Atlanta. But of course, again, Umag, Atlanta, two of our three events. We also had the action in Kitzbühel. Certainly a little bit disappointing. It felt like we might get Dominic Team, Roberto Bautista, Agut, you know, all these different sorts of players competing in the semifinals. Now, we still got RBA. We still got Ramos Vinolas, who is your quintessential litmus test for are you good on a clay court on the ATP Tour. Now, I always enjoy seeing Yana Konofman. I always enjoy a little new blood like we got in Philip Misolich, but 
look, in a week where there were five tour-level events, it wouldn't shock me if for some of you listeners, Kitzbühel was the one you put on the back burner in particular. There's a lot of rain in Kitzbühel throughout the course of last week, so I'll probably be a bit briefer in my recap of that. But look, RBA going to RBA, and that's what he does on a way to a second title here in the 2022 season. I've made this case before. I'll say it again. I know RBA is the same age as Murray and Djokovic. For some reason, I put him in a generation like one generation younger than them, or, you know, I put them in the lost generation of the Dimitrovs, Carreño Bustas, Milos Raonic's of the world. It really is Bautista Gut, who, dare I quote the Cranberries and say, has lingered. Like, he has lingered and stuck around and has played pretty rock-solid ball, according to the numbers, some of the best of his career this season. Now, we can explain or get into whether that's true or not, but again, eight-minute intro, to get to part two of a mega mini break Monday as there was so much championship action. I've got so many thoughts to share from it all. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. And that intro was long enough, so I'll be brief here. Tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15, best equipment, best prices, all in one location. The way you can uh, share your gratitude for their support of our show is by showing them some support as well. Tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. What a weekend of ATP Tour action. And it starts with the battle of the rising next-gen stars. Yannick Sinner taking on Carlos Alcaraz, as I alluded to. 6-7, 6-1, 6-1, Sinner knocks out Alcaraz. How did we get there? Well, it started with exceptional serving from both men. Both men rock solid throughout the course of the opening set. There were no breaks of serves in that opening set between these two young stars. And again, we're on a clay court. We're featuring two of the best 10, 15, certainly by the numbers, returners on the ATP Tour. And yet, neither guy was able to gain any traction. Neither guy was able to create any opportunities for themselves. That's because both guys, even more so than the serve, were just ruthless with the plus one tennis they were able to play. So efficient in picking their spots. And I don't think I have to elaborate on what makes Carlos Alcaraz so special with his plus one tennis because we've all seen it all year long. Even with his loss against Sinner in the final, Carlos Alcaraz still 42-7 and overall on the year. He's made six different finals. He makes back-to-back runs to the finals in Hamburg last week, Sinner this week, uh, excuse me, Umag this week. Now he loses both finals in three sets to Italians. But again, in the 49 matches Carlos Alcaraz has played this season, he hasn't lost a straight set match. He's won at least one set in every match that he's played. This was actually the first match where he won the first set and lost the match this season. Again, turned 19 years old at the start of May. That's the sort of success he's having, protecting leads and protecting his serve. And, you know, again, in the first set, there was just a lot of plus one forehandage from Carlos Alcaraz, who was moving that ball exceptionally well around the court, inside in, inside out, incorporating the drop shot. I thought he was driving the backhand way better in set number one than he ultimately did in sets two and three. But, man, credit to the Sin Man, who kept pace. And we've talked for Yannick Sinner all year long, how he doesn't have a bad loss on his resume. And you look at the numbers, again, he really has been exceptional uh, over the course of 
this 2022 season. And the only thing that's slowed Yannick Sinner down has been injuries. You look for Sinner now in 2022. He's 35-9 overall on the season. He's tied for third in terms of most wins on the ATP Tour. Alcaraz is one. Tsitsipas is two. Then it's Rude, Sinner, Nadal all tied for third. I do think Rude, who obviously made a French Open final, Nadal, who won the first two slams of the season, I think that's the sort of category of player Sinner's been hanging out with this year because you look for Yannick Sinner, A, doesn't have a first-round loss on his resume this season. B, in the, what, 10 events he's played, he's made at least the quarterfinals in seven of those 10 events. Now, this tournament in Umag was his first time advancing past the quarterfinals, but where did those previous six quarterfinals come? Wimbledon, Australian Open, Rome Masters, Monte Carlo Masters, Miami Masters, and then Dubai, which I believe is an ATP 500 event. So all six of his quarterfinal losses came at high-level events. Yannick Sinner is beating everyone he's supposed to beat this season. You look for Sinner against players ranked not outside the top 50, but players just ranked outside the top 20. He's 31-2 this year. 31-2. The two losses are to Francisco Sarandolo, who he had to retire to, down 4-1 in the first set. And by the way, Sorrendolo has been a top 30 player this year, so he may be outside the top 20, but not by much. Ditto, by the way, with his three-set loss to Tommy Paul in Eastbourne. And that loss was one of the first five matches Sinner has played on grass courts in his career. And it was a three-set loss to a guy in Tommy Paul who made two quarterfinals and a round of 16 on grass courts this year. Not a bad loss at all for Yannick Sinner. Other than that, though, again, 31-2. and two against players ranked outside the top 20. He's beating everyone he's supposed to beat. The problem is, doesn't really have a signature victory this year. You know, was 3-7 and seven coming into this one against top 20 opponents. And yes, he beat Rublev. Yes, he beat Carreño Busta in a couple of Masters events. But for a guy like Yannick Sinner, who wants to be a definitive Tier 1 player, who at the start of every slam, when you're making your shortlist, who are the players who can win the freaking slam? Not compete for it, win the tournament. That's the caliber of player Yannick Sinner projects to be. That's the caliber of player he holds himself to be. His win over Alcaraz, four sets in the Wimbledon fourth round. If you want to say that's a signature victory, I won't fight you. God knows I'm about to call his win over Alcaraz at a 250 event a signature victory. But both Sinner and Alcaraz have played such few grass court matches that that much was as much a a data-gathering match as it was a signature victory for Yannick Sinner. This was an unequivocal signature victory. And again, a four center that keep pace six all in the first set. Neither guy breaks serve. You know, center plays a really rough first eight points of the tie break. I believe he makes four unforced errors in those first eight points. He finds himself down six two. What does center do from there? Lock in. Lands a deep return in the court that draws an Alcaraz error for three six. Two big serves from Yannick Center to get back to five six as well. And just, you know, again, on that 5-6 point, Sinner opens up the court for himself. Sinner, I actually think he held serve for 3-6, then had two mini breaks for 5-6, draws two Alcaraz errors. Then 5-6 serving, big serve down, I believe, the T or Y. No, big serve wide or body. Point is, big serve that sets up a plus one ball. Sinner moves in behind it. Alcaraz somehow gets his racket on the inside in approach shot to extend it the rally that much further. And rather than take the ball as a volley, Sinner lets the ball drop. And he shouldn't have let it drop. I'm Now, of course, that's such a difficult decision to make. It's so easy to sit here comfortably in my basement, 
beautifully air-conditioned and, you know, be a sideline commentator, be a backseat driver and say, how do you not take that ball out of the air? You had enough time to do it and, you know, uh, at, go watch the point center. All he had to do was make the volley. He makes the volley. There's no way Carlos Alcaraz, as fast as he is, tracks the ball down. All center had to do was make the volley. He didn't. He let it drop. He was indecisive. He misses the forehand put away in the net. First set, 7-6, Carlos Alcaraz. And you just felt like, okay, from there, Carlos Alcaraz, who holds fairly easy for one love, goes up love 40 in Sinner's opening service game. You just feel like, okay, now's the moment. Well, good first serve from Sinner, plus two missed return errors from Carlos Alcaraz, Get us back to Deuce. And just like that, Yannick Sinner's back in his opening service game. And just like that, Sinner ends up holding 4-1 all. And from there, you know, the number of Sinner wins 12 of the last 13 games in the match. You could also say 12 of the last 14 games, given it was 6-7-6-1-6-1. I don't think that uh, is particularly worse. But, you know, Sinner fought off all nine break points that he faced in the match. And I, from my calculations, and Andael Gruskin, if you watch the match and you think I'm wrong, from my calculations, five of those nine break points were missed returns from Carlos Alcaraz. That's just not the Alcaraz we've gotten to know throughout the course of the year. And Carlos Alcaraz, who was breaking serve over 34% of the time by the end of the clay court season, which is better than prime Djokovic, better than prime Nadal, he's down to 30.9%, which is still elite. Still a top four number amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour, but it is a little bit back to life. He's really, really good at returning, but okay, you start to see a little bit of a blink. You start to see, okay, he's 19 years old. It's not quite clicking as flawlessly as it was early in the year, and that to me is a testament to Sinner, who just made Carlos Alcaraz work, and in particular, Sinner was just better backhand to backhand, his ability to draw that ball cross court, his ability to open up angle for himself. You can, there's a visceral feeling when Sinner goes cross court with that backhand, how adamant he is. And you can just see it with your eyes and getting his hands outside that ball, keeping his shoulder uh, closed until he turns into that cross court backhand to open up the angle. He was just able to find the Alcaraz backhand wing. And again, I wish I had the unforced errors in front of me, but Alcaraz started spraying throughout the course of sets number two and three. And, you know, again, he had nine breakpoint chances. I think seven of them came in the first two service games for Yannick Sinner in set number two. It didn't matter. Like, again, Sinner was able to find plus one balls. I thought Sinner defensively on the forehand side was particularly exceptional. He was more than comfortable just absorbing the pace from Alcaraz using his own hand skills, and he creates such exceptional racket speed to just roll that ball back cross court. Take the, you know, if Alcaraz is going to run all the way to the ad side alley to hit a forehand, fine. Sinner just hit a defensive cross court ball, forced Alcaraz to be on the full sprint, and then opened up himself the opportunity to attack the Alcaraz. Alcaraz backhand. Sinner was not afraid. I hope I'm doing a good enough job explaining this. If I'm not, at A.L. Gruskin. But what made Sinner so impressive was he was not afraid to play to the Carlos Alcaraz forehand to open up the backhand wing. And what do I mean by that? Of course, anyone wants to pick on Carlos Alcaraz's backhand because you just, if he's hitting forehands, you lose. If you're too adamant, too repetitive, too predictable in attacking that ad side corner, 
Alcaraz is going to sit on it, and he's going to find forehand after forehand and move you around the court, and now you're playing on his terms. Well, how Sinner prevented that is if Alcaraz was going to camp over, again, he took the open space. He played the cross-court ball. He forced Alcaraz to hit something on the sprint, and from there, you know, as good as Alcaraz is on the run— Sinner was exceptional from the baseline. He was in control. He was smooth. He was steady. Again, he was comfortable and willing to move forward, even if he wasn't always the best at finishing points at the net. But, you know, I thought he played the drop shot extraordinarily well. I thought there were moments when he re-dropped, which is when you had a drop shot off of a drop shot, Carlos Alcaraz, where you're like, I didn't know Yannick Sinner had that in his bag. In particular, I think it was early in the third set, Alcaraz hits a drop shot, Sinner tracks it down, hits an on-the-slide, full-sprint, backhand drop shot, short angle, uh, down the line, that over the highest part of the net that Alcaraz doesn't track down. And you're just like, again, does Yannick Sinner have this in his bag? Is he this tall, uh, this fluid now as an athlete? Because I do think early in his career, and he was 17, 18 years old at the time, he was a little stiff in his hips. He's not anymore. He's gotten a little taller, a little stronger, and again, you look for Yannick Sinner now. It's the seventh final in his career on the ATP Tour. He's won six titles by the age of 20. That's an elite list. Like Again, I think Roberto Bautista Gut just won, what, his like 12th title, 13th title? I'll look that up now. But you know, again, at 20 years old, Yannick Sinner has six titles. That's remarkable. And yeah, you look for uh, Roberto Bautista Agut in his career. He's got 12 titles. Sinner's halfway there by the age of 20. You know, I think anyone, you ask any aspiring young player, would you, if you're guaranteed Roberto Bautista Agut's career, would you take it? I think all of them say yes. You know, Yannick Sinner has clearly already exceeded that. And you look for Sinner, who's up to number 10 uh, in the live rankings with his victory. Of course, he'll lose some points as he's going to lose those ATP 500 title from the City Open last year. So he chose not to defend his title, which is a bold choice. But I'm sure Umag made it worth his while. But look, Yannick Sinner, 13th now in the points race this season. And just, which actually feels way too low for center. Oh, because obviously they didn't offer Wimbledon points where he had a quarterfinal and he had to, you know, again, but he's been damn solid just about everywhere. He is one of those guys already in the top 10, top eight mix at no lower than tier two in his current state of, you know, again, guys who you know are going to be in the second week of a slam, just beat who they're supposed to beat. Again, he's 32 and two against players ranked outside the top 20 this year. He's crushing them. Um, Or 31 and two, excuse me. This was a signature victory to be down a set, to be down, you know, five break points in your opening service game when you're down 7-6-1-0, love 40, to hold in that scenario, to win 12 of the last 13 games, to break the will of Carlos Alcaraz, because Alcaraz was dogging it at the end of the second set, was spraying and just going for ridiculous winners, hitting lackadaisical drop shots that Sinner took care of. He broke Alcaraz's spirit, and Alcaraz thought, okay, I'm going to have to win this match in the third. But then there was no blinking from Yannick Sinner, who faces early break points in set number three, fights them off, gets up an early break, holds from there. And you look for Yannick Sinner in this match against Alcaraz, only made 58% of his first serves, but he won 77% of his first serve points, won 61% of his second serve points. And yes, it was a bad day at the office for Carlos Alcaraz, but you look for Yannick Sinner, he's holding 84.6% of the time. That's a career high. He's hitting aces on 6.8% of first serves. That's a career high. He's winning 74.8% of his first serves. That's a career high. 
he has continued to, you know, he's always been a good returner. He's averaging 26.6% for his career. That's a top 15 number at age 20. The return skills, we all see them. You know, when he gives himself time, he can just take such impressive cuts on the ball. But, man, the you know, the improvement on the serve, his improvement and his decisiveness and his plus, he's always had the weapons, but just his confidence in his patterns now, plus one inside in, you know, backhand cross court to open up the backhand down the line, his willingness to move forward to take advantage of the space, his overwhelming powerful ground strokes create. I mean, he was exceptional this week. And you look for him straight set wins over guys in Munar, Corbeus Baina, and Agamanone, who just didn't have the weapons to hurt him. And again, on a clay court in four matches, Sinner was broken four times total in eight sets throughout the course of the week. Typically, if you do that, you're going to end up in the winner's circle. And that's precisely the case for Yannick Sinner, who, again, was exceptional. And I've had him tier one forever. You know, I think he is guaranteed to win a Grand Slam by 2030. He's one of six guys I have on that list. We'll get into that when we do our ATP Tears podcast later on this week on the Great Shot podcast. But do any of the results this season. Again, there's just not a bad loss on his resume. Yeah, he loses matches to Tsitsipas and Zverev and Hercots and FAA, but he doesn't lose to players he's not supposed to lose to. And that's half the battle, just being in position to get the big win. And this time, he gets the big win, arguably his best uh, of the season. Again, three sets over Alcaraz. And look, Carlos Alcaraz played nine matches in, what, 12 days between Hamburg and Umag. He, you know, loses two three-set matches in two finals in those two weeks. He's up to number four in the world, a career high at 19 freaking years old. He's number two in the points race and, you know, pretty definitively ahead in the race for the year-end finals. He needs 1,700 or 1,640 more points to qualify for the year-end finals. He's going to be a top eight player at the end of the season, which, again, at 19 years old, I'm sure we'll get the list. Youngest since Djokovic, youngest since Murray, Zverev, all those guys. Alcaraz has put himself in position to do all of these special things. Yes, he loses two finals. Yes, I don't think he played his best tennis at any stretch in these past two weeks. If you're selling your stock in Carlos Alcaraz, you're just a fool. And again, looking at this matchup, they just played four sets at Wimbledon. They play three sets here in Umag. They played at the end of last season indoors. I believe it was a 6-6 six and six win for Alcaraz. This is the rivalry of the future. Let me ask you this. And I know, you know, Medvedev-Zverev, Zverev-Sitsipas, Medvedev-Sitsipas. I think those three produced some pretty fun matchups between the three of them. Go look at Cincinnati last year or, you know, year-end year finals, Asia swing a couple of years ago. Whenever Zverev and Medvedev play, I always think it's fascinating because it epitomizes modern tennis. Two six foot six behemoths who move way better than anyone their size should. Um, I think that's a fun matchup. I think Zverev Tsitsipas is a fun matchup because those are two guys who have been branded the guys for quite a bit of time. And whenever they share the court, it's exciting. Obviously, there was a little bit of love lost between Tsitsipas and Medvedev early in their careers. I think that's a fun matchup. I think Nick Kyrgios versus Tsitsipas has to be in your top five list because it just is a rivalry. It just is a rivalry now. Go watch the Wimbledon match. Anytime they share the court, that matchup is just straight up a rivalry. Outside of that, I mean, again, obviously permutations with Nadal and Djokovic, I'm excluding here. Nadal Djokovic is the number one matchup 
even if it's not my favorite matchup, it just is the number one matchup. The history behind it, what those two have meant to the game, the level of play those two continue to play at. Usually when they play, there are Grand Slam titles on the line. That's your number one matchup. And if you want to say permutations of Djokovic or Nadal versus Alcaraz, Sinner, Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, whatever, you want to throw those in the mix, fine. I'm not going to knock you. I'm banning them from this list. And I'm saying moving forward over the next decade, is there a matchup that excites you both because of the electricity, you know, again, the various chess moves that have to be incorporated because both guys do everything fairly well. There's no definitive weakness in the Alcaraz center for either guy to attack on any surface. That might be my favorite matchup. And I mean, obviously, two guys who are the two highest ranked players under the age of 21 right now on the ATP Tour, both guys who are, again, inside the top 15 of the ATP rankings right now. Very much, you know, it could be a year-end finals round-robin matchup for the next decade. Alcaraz versus Sinner. Eventually, we'll be talking, hey, one of them's the one seed in one group. The other's the one seed in the other group. I love this matchup. I put it, you know, again, excluding all Djokovic-Nadal permutations. Boy, I love Zverev Medvedev. I might be the only one. I, it just gets funky. That's my number one. This is number two. And by the way, Zverev Sinner, I know I've mentioned Zverev a lot here. Obviously, you all know why I think his game can be captivating when he's on. Zverev Alcaraz. I just think Zverev's a fun matchup because you just never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's pretty. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's awful. Um... I would say Zverev Medvedev won, but not by a lot. And then Sinner Alcaraz too. But again, add A.L. Gruskin, exclude Djokovic, exclude Nadal. What are your favorite matchups right now on the ATP Tour? Where do Sinner and Alcaraz rank in those matchups? I think it's got to be top five. But of course, that was your Umag final. And I think 20 minutes on that final is more than enough just to quickly put a final bow on everything else that happened in Umag this week. How about Giulio Zeppieri? Led Zepp, the 20-year-old Italian, another Italian on the rise. And you look for Zeppieri, who's 22-20 and overall this year. He's had some career results, though, if you look at what he's been able to accomplish. Zeppieri, of course, qualifying for the French Open this year. That was, I believe, the first main draw to slam that he's played in his career. He qualifies for the main draw in Rome as well. And look, reaches his first ATP quarterfinal, reaches his first ATP semifinal, all in the span of one week. And you know, beat a couple of clay court grinders who he's been competing with and falling short against on the challenger level. But this time, you know, three set wins for him over Simone, Emer, Kashin, and Galan, Guyan, excuse me, in qualifying through the round of 16. Wins four straight three set matches uh, before a straight set win over Zapata Morales in the quarterfinals. And then, honest to God, had Carlos Alcaraz on the brink. Uh, you know, goes up that early break in the third set and, you know, takes the second set from Alcaraz after dropping the first, and I believe he had set points in the first, if memory serves me correct, a 7-5 first set that ultimately went to Carlos Alcaraz. But, man, Led Zepp can move. And you look for Zeppieri, who's only made one challenger final in his career and won that challenger title at the uh, in August of last season. He's 11-13 and 13 this year on the challenger tour. A couple of quarterfinals under his belt, but hasn't had a standout year still. 
I just like the lefty's game. I think there's a little more pop on that serve than you'd expect for a guy his size. And you look for Zepieri, who is currently, again, 20 years old. I want to make sure I get his height correct because I think he's like 5'10". No, he's, yeah, he's six foot. The lefty's six foot. And yet, again, I just like the pop he's able to play with. I like how well he moves the ball around the court. I like the pace he can generate on his forehand wing as well. Zepieri up to number 136 in the live rankings and ATP rankings, a new career high. Look, it was a massive week for the qualifier. And while I think his ground stroke isn't overwhelming, and I think the clay court helps it explode through the court a little bit more uh, than it normally would, I just like the pop on his serve. He's a guy who's pretty good at everything. It would shock me if we don't see him in the top 100 in the next two years. And then you've got Franco Agamanone. And Agamanone, of course, 29 years old, uh, was out for the entirety of 2019 after getting popped for a doping suspension. But look, he's been exceptional over the past 52 weeks and really since the start of last season, building his ranking up and having all sorts of success. I think it was like nine finals at the futures level last year. And then, you know, by August, September, he's winning back a couple of challenger titles in Prague and Kiev and beating Sepp Baez to win that Kiev challenger title. He beats Baez again in three sets from 5-3 down in third to advance to the quarterfinals. Crushed Marco Cecinato in the semis. All he really had to do was show up but I don't think he made an unforced error. And that's really, again, that was what it took to beat Chechenato on that day. Couldn't hurt Yannick Sinner in the final. And, you know, again, what are the weapons for Agamemnon, particularly on a faster surface? How is he going to finish point? I'm not, points, I'm not sure. But he's rock solid off of both wings. And I like the depth he's able to generate. I like the size. I like the serve. Not the most willing to come forward, but you look for Franco Agamemnone, who himself is up to a new career high in the ATP rankings. Agamemnone, number 108 now, has done an excellent job to build himself back. And obviously, first quarterfinal for him at the ATP level, first semifinal for him at the ATP level this week as well. And, you know, 108 in the world, you might just get into the U.S. Open after all the withdrawals come through. So those are my thoughts on championship weekend in Umag. Obviously, your quarterfinalists, Bagnus, Carbez Baina, Cecinato, Zapata Morales, all taking advantage of a clay court event being on the calendar this late in the calendar. So credit to them for making those moves. But... Again, your story of the week in Umag. Yannick Sinner just continuing to amaze. Actually, one more bonus stat for all of you listeners regarding our next-gen ATP 2.0 stars. You look at the Tennis Abstract yearly ELO ratings, and your typical reminder, ELO ratings measure who you play, what your score is against them, as opposed to the ATP rankings, which measure what event you play someone at, what round of that event you play them in, according to the Tennis Abstract yearly ELO ratings. Your number one player in the world this season, Rafael Nadal. Makes sense. Two Grand Slam titles under his belt. Your number two player in the world, Novak Djokovic. Again, makes sense. Really, since the week before the French Open, he's been as good as any player, if not better, on the ATP Tour. Of course, after that, number three in the yearly ELO ratings, Carlos Alcaraz. Number four in the yearly ELO ratings, Yannick Sinner. 
It's not Zverev, who's five. Kyrgios somehow at six. Tsitsipas, Rude, Hercats, Nori, Medvedev. All of these players rank below our next-gen ATP 2.0 stars, Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner. So again, to go full circle here, why is this one of the best matchups on the ATP Tour? You have two of the four best players in the world this season, according to Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings more than anything else, though. It feels like we're going to get at least another decade of these two players just thriving on the ATP Tour, and any chance we get to see them play this early in their career, have to value it as tennis fans, no doubt about it. But with that said, enough on Umag. Let's move over now stateside for the kickoff of our North American hardcourt stretch. Of course, it starts, as always, in Atlanta at the John Isner Open, where for one of the first times, what I think one of four times since 2012, John Isner did not win the title in Atlanta. Instead, it was Alex Diemenauer who earns his second title in Atlanta in his career, sixth ATP title overall. He was excellent in the final, a 6-3-6-3 victory over rising young American Jensen Brooksby. And as I alluded to in the intro, what was so impressive about Alex Diemenauer throughout the course of this match is just the steadiness with which he played. You look for Hour 17 winners against 15 unforced errors in this match. It's really hard to hit only 15 unforced errors against a player in Jensen Brooksby, who, as we often refer to here on this podcast, is death by high percentage tennis. You look for Jensen Brooksby. He's never going to beat himself, right? And although the 21 unforced errors he committed in today's, or yesterday's, Sunday's Atlanta final, that's on the higher side for Brooksby, who, of course, just wants to move the the ball around the court, create opening after opening after opening for himself until there's a big lane of space for him to attack. Of course, he also banks on his opponents offering him that unforced error, banks on his opponents becoming impatient, and thus, you know, their games become a bit more volatile over time. What was so impressive to me about Alex Diemenauer's performance is how, in crunch time, in this match, throughout the you know the course of the match, when Demonauer found himself uncomfortable, or Demonauer found himself in an you know, trailing on the scoreboard as he did at times. You look, of course, in the second set of this match, it was D- uh, Demonauer who goes down. You know, he goes up, I believe, Demonauer quickly, a one-love break in set number two. Brooksby breaks right back, 4-1 all, holds again, 4-2-1. And, you know, in that span of time between, you know, again, 0-1, or 1-0 up and 2-1 down, you know, Demonauer makes four of his 15 unforced airs in the match. Four out of 15 unforced airs. And to be honest, that's a little bit generous because they're chalking some Brooksby shots up to forced errors, but they weren't. They were a little bit more unforced for Alex Diemenauer. Again, a third of his unforced errors come in a two-game stretch. Does Diemenauer panic? No. Does he start forcing the issue and start to, you know, win his way back by hitting winners early in the rally? No. What is the adjustment Diemenauer makes in this matchup against a grinder's grinder in Jensen Brooksby? Diemenauer slows things down. Diemenauer is willing to play the 10, 15, 20-shot rallies. And you look in this match, what was so impressive for Hour is, you know, he was, let's see, 31, 20, 70. He's plus four in the rallies. That goes, uh, you know, five shots or further. It was also plus seven in the zero to four-shot rallies. He was better at generating offense for himself but he was also patient enough that he didn't let the steadiness, the relentlessness, the high percentage tennis of Jensen Brooksby get to him. And again, no one has ever doubted the physicality 
of a healthy Alex Diemenauer, who is one of those special movers on the ATP Tour, particularly on this surface. It feels like Alex Diemenauer can track down any ball thrown in his direction, at least get his racket on it on a hard court. He is just one of those special, fluid athletes who gets in and out of corners exceptionally well, who's always going to get two looks at a passing shot because if he dips the first one at his feet, it's just really hard to push put that volley away. And if you don't put the volley away, Alex Diemenauer is going to track it down. And just, again, I tweeted this out during the match. I actually think he has gotten a lot better at generating pace for himself, at creating attacking opportunities. You look for Demon Hour, 79.8% hold percentage this year. That's a third consecutive year of growth, second highest number in his career and above his career average. He's also breaking serve 28.8% of the time, which is above his career average and the highest number of his career by 3%. I mean, right now, Alex Diemenauer is, I mean, the hold percentage is a little bit low, and the hold percentage average of a top 50 player is 81.8%, but again, Diemenauer works himself closer and closer to that average number. He's a top 10 returner on the ATP Tour. It's the steady growth on serve. It's the improvement in his plus one tennis. I think he does, and this gets back to, I mentioned this on Twitter, I think he's a pretty good Juan Martin Del Potro impression on that forehand wing. Now, it's not the relentless power. It's not the relentless depth and just the relentlessness of that Delpo forehand. But if you give Alex Diemenauer time on that forehand wing, A, how he slaps through the ball flat reminds me a lot of the Del Potro backswing. Go watch a Delpo forehand. Go watch Alex Diemenauer turn into a forehand at A.L. Gruskin. If you think I'm still wrong, obviously feel free to let me know. But when he has time under him uh, for himself or... He's on the run, and he just slaps one of those electric down-the-line or cross-court winners by you. It's just—it's special. It is a Delpo-esque impersonation. But again, against Brooksby, what I liked so much after the four unforced errors to go down 2-1 in the second set, he just got into grind mode. Just elevated, loopy, neutral balls, cross-court, down-the-line, inside-out, you name it. Demon Hour threw it at Brooksby. There was a very long game in the second set of the match where— uh, or long game, excuse me, I believe it was a 26-shot rally uh, that Demon Hour ultimately wins to take uh, for uh, to earn the ad at 3-all in that second set. It was, yeah, a 36-shot rally or something crazy like that. Demon Hour ultimately wins it. He breaks Brooksby on the next point. You could just tell from there Brooksby, he had taken Brooksby's legs from him. And to take the legs out from underneath Jensen Brooksby Damn near impossible to do. And a testament to the efforts of Demon Hour, who wins his first title of this 2022 season. You look for Demon Hour, though. It's been a damn solid year. He's 31-16 and 16 overall. That's a top 10 number in terms of total wins on the season at the ATP Tour. Again, he's trailing the elite guys, the Tsitsipas, the Rudes, the Alcarazes, Sinners, Rafas of the world. That's really the only group of players that Demon Hour trails. And, you know, you look for him of late semifinals in Eastbourne, round of 16 in Wimbledon, now another Atlanta title. He is peaking at the most opportune of moments because, of course, the biggest successes in Alex Demonauer's career at the ATP level, of course, have all come on hard courts. You look for Demonauer, who's 15-6 and six this season on hard courts, made round of 16 Australian Open, round of 16 Indian Wells, now wins this Atlanta title as well. You know, highest win percentage for him in his career comes on the hard courts. He wins 62% of his tour-level matches, 106-64. and 64. His, you know, hold percentage, uh, 
is 80.5%. That break percentage, 25%. Total points, 151.4%. It's the highest number for him on any of the surfaces. Of course, we've also seen him have success uh, at multiple slams. You know, obviously the Australian Open round of 16 he made. He made the U.S. Open quarterfinal back in 2020 as well. You know, a next-gen finalist as well who's, you know, made end-of-year runs in Zhuhai, in Basel, uh, you know, at various points of uh, throughout the course of his career. Always seems to come out of the year strong as well, whether it be in Antalya, in Sydney. It's just damn near impossible to get a ball by him on these hard courts. And again, Manorino, Duckworth, Ivashka, not necessarily Brooksby, the four players he beat to win the title in Atlanta, not necessarily guys you would describe as power tennis players or possessing elite power, the elite sort of weapons to pressure the Demon Hour forehand, which with that Eastern grip and his big backswing can certainly produce unforced errors when pressured by further pace. But again, like unless you've got a weapon like that, Demon Hour is just going to get you. And you look for him overall this season in terms of first match success. Demon Hour is 13-3. His first round losses, five sets, Hugo Gaston, 7-6 in the third at Roland Garros. Not a great loss. I think we can write that one off, though. 7-6 in the third. I mean, come on. On his worst surface, he had his shots, just unable to get over the finish line. Straight set loss on a grass court to Adrian Manorino, first grass court match of the year. I don't think that's a bad loss. And then, you know, a 7-5 in the third set loss to Karen Hatchinov in Dubai. I don't think any of those first-round losses are bad. And 13-3 and this year in first-round matches after going 12-12 and in first-round matches last year, 4-4 four and four in 2020. He's just beating everyone he's supposed to beat this season, getting to those second rounds and putting himself in positions to, again, have success against higher-ranked players. Now, you look for Demon Hour this year, 28-6 and six against opponents ranked outside the top 20. That's not sinner levels of success, but it's pretty damn good. You look for him, he's 14-2 and two against opponents ranked outside the top 50, 17-14 against top 50 opponents, 3-10 and 10 against the top 20, and you look for him now since the start of the 2020 season, Demon Hour, 9-21 and 21 against top 20 opponents over the last two and a half years. I mean, the big difference for him is you just see the dip in his hold percentage. His hold percentage goes from 78% against opponents ranked outside the top, excuse me, 88% against opponents ranked outside the top 50, 83% against opponents ranked outside the top 20. That number drops to 73% against top 20 opponents. So, you know, the elite returners, the guys with the big weapons, they're teeing off on the Alex Demonauer serve. That said, as I alluded to earlier, it's been a lot of career highs for Demon Hour this year on serve. The first serve win percentage, the second serve win percentage, how frequently he's holding, how frequently he's winning free points for himself, 4.7% eight percentage. That's above his career average. He's just earning more free points, putting himself in a more advantageous position behind that serve. And, you know, the ground strokes, the speed, the creativity, the feel in the outer thirds. I think he's a pretty damn good volleyer as well who uses his speed so well to beat you in the spot, uh, to the spot. Now, the question, of course, for Alex Demonauer, what is his upside moving forward? And I mentioned those numbers for Demonauer. We'll just look at his career against top 20 opponents in the at the ATP level. He's 15 and 40. 
you look for him against top 10 opponents, he's 6-28. and 28. And, you know, who are those top 10 wins against? Players like Roberto Bautista Agut, who he beat twice. He beat Anishi Kori once. He beat a Cam Nori once. Those aren't the elite of the elite of top 10 players, right? Now, he does have a good win over Berrettini at ATP Cup this year. Good win over Zverev at ATP Cup two years ago. But that's it. You know, again, the rest of the time, these top foes, these players with the weapons, with the weapons to excel past him, plus can match his physicality, not necessarily his speed, but aren't going to be overwhelmed by the length of time Alex Diemenauer, the stamina of Alex Diemenauer. All these top 20 guys can match that stamina, right? They've also got other weapons for them as well. I actually think a pretty good comparison for Alex Diemenauer is Cam Norrie. Now, Diemenauer doesn't quite have the strength of a Cam Nori, but it's a very similar physicality in how both of them hit their spots. Both of them change directions. Both of them are going to move you around the court. Now, I think De- uh, Nori does a better job of spreading the court. I think the Nori forehand is probably the most effective weapon of any of the Demon Hour Nori shots. But, I mean, again, Demon Hour is just too good of an athlete to be denied. Like, and he flashes too many different things on the court. Yeah, his backhand's a very responsive shot. He absorbs, redirects the pace of his opponent. Yeah, he can manufacture pace on the forehand, but he really needs time to be able to do that, or it's got to be some on-the-run magic because that standard middle third forehand for Alex Diemenauer, again, it's not an overwhelming ball, and it is on the flatter side. That said, what, like, when we looked at, you saw it in the results this season. He's popping players he's supposed to beat now. And he's winning, you know, 13 and 3, again, in first matches and, you know, cleaning up 28 and 6 against opponents ranked outside the top 20. He's doing his job now. He's beating who he's supposed to beat. And you just look at that floor for Demon Hour, who's been a top 30 player since 2018, 2019, and just. You know, still only 23 years old, turns 24 in February of next year. Feels like there's still time for him to put on a little muscle, which, by the way, he's continued to put on muscle throughout the course of his career. And again, the serve gets better. The plus one forehand gets better. It's just not a lot of weaknesses in the game of Alex Diemenauer. And at 23 years old, it does feel like there's still more upside for him to tap into. I mean, is he a tier two guy? Do you see him over the next five years competing for a spot in the year-end finals and you know, pretty consistently making second weeks at at least three out of the four Grand Slams? It feels like he should never lose before the round of 16 in Australia or the U.S. Open, especially if he's going to be a top 20 seed. It just with his physicality, his speed, three out of five sets. Are you kidding me? Alex Diemenauer, you feel like, should thrive in those circumstances Again, he's a solid mover on the clay courts. His backhand, it's really hard for him to rip through a clay court on that backhand side. The serve, not quite as effective on the clay courts, but that's a third of the season only. It feels like he should thrive in the other two-thirds, and it's great to see him playing some of his best tennis. Again, did not play his best, whether it was round of 16 against Duckworth, quarters against Manorino, semis against Devashka. Both of those last two matches, he goes three sets and drops the first set, and yet found his legs took the legs out from underneath his opponents and does the same thing against Brooksby in the final to earn title number six. Of course, you look for Jensen Brooksby. Boy, did he need that run to the Atlanta final with the Newport points falling off of his resume. City Open semifinalist last year, though he lost first round today. And, you know, what is it? Round of 16 points at the U.S. Open coming up uh, from the end of last season. Semifinals of Antwerp. He's got a lot of points to defend still coming up down this back half of the year. But 
you know, now 20, uh, 21 and 15 overall on the year, reaches his first quarterfinal, semifinal, and final since Dallas back at the start of February of this season. And, you know, again, just in a, in a particularly pertinent part of the year for Brooksby, he just Brooksbeat it up against Francis, you know, against Mackey, just kept, continued to move the ball around and didn't provide Mackey enough pace to make it easy for Mackey to counterpunch and turn defense into offense and quickly change direction up the lines with his shot because of how well Brooksby moves the ball around the court, how well Brooksby's going to track down if you try to go down the line, and then he's got a whole cross-court space to work with. I mean, Brooksby's just rock solid and very much similar, I shouldn't say exactly the same, but similar to Yannick Sinner. There's a visceral feeling when Brooksby gets his hands outside the ball on the backhand wing and his ability to pull that ball both line or cross, exceptional. I think the forehand, when he has time, has much more pace on it than you would think watching it on TV. There's a bite to that forehand, a little sting behind it as well. And then again, he just... It's always a high percentage play. You know, you look at the first serve percentages, 75, 65, 66, 77, 70%. Yeah, he doesn't overwhelm you with his first serve power, but he always hits his spots. He's going to find his plays. And, you know, the thing that was so disappointing against Demon Hours, again, the unforced errors piled up for Jensen Brooksby, who made 21 overall in the match and just especially towards the end of set number two, didn't have his legs under him, was trying to pull the trigger a little bit earlier, and it's just not as easy for him to win points that way when that's the mode of tennis he begins to play. But, again, Mackie, Isner, Tiafo. Three Americans Brooksby will have looked and seen on the rankings list throughout his career of playing tennis. Three guys who, for various reasons, he at some point was chasing or aspiring to be like at different points of his career. He beats them all. And look, the one in four victory over Tiafo, it was impressive. Again, Tiafo couldn't hurt Brooksby, which, and Brooksby doesn't seem like he's fast, but he just anticipates so well and is so fluid moving around the court, just gets to where he needs to go, which ultimately in tennis isn't that the name of the game. Look, after the match, Brooksby wins. He does the Tiafo celebration, the LeBron step down, step over, gesturing your hands downwards toward the ground as if, again, you're stepping over your opponent. Um, it was a full-on mockery, certainly, of the Francis Tiafo celebration, and Tiafo reciprocated by a very offering a very brief handshake uh, at the at the end of the match. Look, is Jensen Brooksby part of the American Men crew? No, he's not the guy hanging out with Tiafo and Paul and Opelka and Fritz and. You know, he's not part of the legendary fantasy football league with Kozlov and Mo and shout out to the OG Luca Corintelli. He's not a part of that fantasy football crew. He's not in the inner circle of American men's tennis. He doesn't want to be in the inner circle of American men's tennis. So I don't want to say he doesn't want to be, but he doesn't need to be for him to have success. And again, for those who know Jensen Brooksby, you know he wasn't being rude with the Francis Tiafo step over. He was trying to be funny. He was trying to engage the crowd. He was trying to just add a little smack talk, a little competition onto onto the tennis scene. And 
Look, of course it's going to be poorly received by tennis Twitter, who is never more hypocritical than when they say, man, I just wish there was more spice on the tennis court. I wish players showed their personality more. I wish we had a little bit more intense rivalry. I wish these players really got into it. And again, there was some animosity between the two sides for entertainment values. Never rudeness, but animosity. And then the moment someone does something like that, tries to expand out of their shell, tries to be a little bit different, a little bit rebellious on court, just unanimous, unanimous on him from the rest of tennis Twitter and insinuating all of these ridiculous connotations. And look, am I defensive of Brooksby? Absolutely, because we've gotten to know him well at Cracked Rackets. And I'm sorry, but anyone who ascribes or anyone who prescribes the political beliefs because you saw a Twitter post from his mom and just assume, oh, Jensen Brooksby must automatically feel that exact same way or just like, oh, I disagree with the Twitter beliefs of uh, the political leanings of his mother. Therefore, I have to despise him. Like, okay, I'm not going to talk you out of doing that. So you do your thing. But I am going to call you out from being a hypocrite from now on because you can't simultaneously ask for players to show personality, ask for them to be humans and again be interesting on the court talk a little smack have a little fun all of us if you went listen to Enzo Kakao's conversation with Chris Eubanks on uh, the behind the racket podcast Eubanks and Kakao talk about the need for there to be a little bit more edge on the tennis court well Jensen Brooks be doing that is providing edge and yet you know the universal condemnation of Brooks beyond tennis Twitter after the fact was just unacceptable like I get it it to mock Tiafo that directly by doing his step over was a little unacceptable, for sure. But do you know Jensen Brooksby? Like, Jensen did not do it in a mocking fashion. I mean, he did do it in a mocking fashion, but Jensen did not do it to be mean to Francis Tiafo. He did it to try and engage the crowd, to try and be funny. And look, was it funny? Maybe a little bit. Was it funny in the way he intended it to be funny? Absolutely not. And he should have been aware that by doing that specific celebration, you're going to invite this sort of criticism from other people. But man, does the hypocrisy on tennis Twitter frustrate me. Put this on the on the bullet points of, you know, things that Alex gets mad about from social media. You know, it's it's just – it's ludicrous to try to, again – ascribe political beliefs to someone based on their celebration. It's like, look, we're going to get into it. Everyone who watched that step over, the universal condemnation was, he's a Trumper. Oh, he's got to be voted for Donald Trump. He must be a conservative. He's a Trumper. Let me be clear. I despise Donald Trump and everything he stands for as a politician, the degradation it calls in our body politique and the way we talk to one another, just a direct through line from him running for president in 2015 to where I am now. It's just direct hatred towards any I, I just don't understand it towards everything he stands for those are my political beliefs that doesn't mean I can't enjoy watching Jensen Brooksby play tennis the same way as someone who is vaccinated as someone who thoroughly believes listen to the scientists they know what they're doing you're not smarter than them go get vaccinated if you haven't already you know I can still enjoy Novak Djokovic's tennis even if he isn't vaccinated I just think well, I'm not saying you have to completely separate the two to ascribe these beliefs or ascribe these values onto Jensen Brooksby based off of a post-match celebration he did. It just infuriates me. And maybe that will alienate some of you podcast listeners. And again, if you vehemently disagree with me, 
feel free to tell me why I'm wrong. At A.L. Gruskin. It's not as though Jensen Brooksby is going out there and saying, yeah, I support Donald Trump, and here are the six reasons why, and then you can justifiably say, no, I cannot support someone who supports an insurrectionist like Donald Trump. But Jensen Brooksby's not out there wearing a, a Make America Great Again hat. All he did was mimic a Francis Tiafo celebration, the exact sort of color and gravitas and drama we're, we hope to have in a sport as tennis because that sort of drama just makes the sport more engaging for us fans. And just, again, that was a rant that was overdone, probably wasn't needed, I should, but it, it's just... It's unacceptable to me. Again, he's a 20-year-old kid who's been homeschooled, who's been sheltered his entire life. I would hope there's some sympathy and some understanding that, like, look, the social cues aren't perfect, like, for Jensen Brooksby. He's not a guy who's been around massive crowds his entire life, not a guy who understands, you know what, maybe I should let that one, it, clearly, he's 20 years old, doesn't know, maybe I shouldn't do that one. Maybe I'll keep that one in the past, you know, I'll, I'll keep that one to the side moving forward and find a different celebration to go with. I just think the vociferousness of those people who just like you accuse him of these things, you don't know the kid in the slightest. Like it's just maddening to me. And again, I am protective of Jensen because he's been extraordinarily kind to us here at Crack Rackets and He's genuinely a good kid, genuinely who just wants nothing else but to be out there playing tennis, hitting tennis balls, even working out to him is a waste of time. Why would I be doing dumbbell curls when I can just be going out and working on my forehand? That's the Jensen Brooksby mindset, a man who has been so thoroughly obsessed with becoming the best tennis player that he can be that he missed out on some of the social lessons you pick up when you're able to live a normal lifestyle early in your life. But I'm sorry, just... Those of you who, again, I'm not, I'm not endorsing, advocating, defending anything to do with Donald Trump's political beliefs or actions. But the amount of people who directly turn to, well, he's a Trumper. What do you expect? Oh, he's a Trumper. Like, no, he's not. <laughs> I just don't know how else to say it. No, he is not. And so, stop doing that. It, it just, it's not fun for any of us. And. Quite frankly, it doesn't help the dialect either of that's not the criticism. If you want to criticize the mocking, can't knock you there. It was a poor choice from him to choose that celebration in particular. But to criticize the intent as though he's trying to degrade Francis Tiafo, like, come on now. What are we doing here? Just let's be smarter than that, people. But with all that said, again, that's a lot on Atlanta, a lot of demon hour. Brooksby game-wise, again, a much-needed result for him. Serve is about—the it, book, book is out a little bit on him. If you force Jensen to have to manufacture some offense, it becomes a little bit more difficult for him. But, man, when he's in counterpunching mode, as he was in his first four victories in Atlanta, you get why the 21-year-old has already cracked the top 50 of the rankings. But with all of that said, two events in the books. Let's move on to our final one in Kitzbühel. And be a little quicker on this one since I spent a ton of time covering Kitzbühel last week as I covered a lot of those matches as broadcasting as a part of T2. Certainly, let's start with Roberto Bautista Agut. Bautista Agut now earning his 12th career ATP title, just his third title, I believe. No, just his second title on the clay courts as he ultimately earns a 2-2 two and two win over Philip Misalic. And look, for Misalic, who had to come back six all in the third, finish his semifinal the day after he had to come back and finish his quarterfinal. Played a lot of tennis. His He was most impacted by the reign of probably anyone competing in Kitzbühel throughout the week. But 
Man, outside of his matchup against Yuri Lechechka, where Lechechka served for the match in the second set, that was the quarterfinal win for RBA, 4-6-7-5-7-5. I mean, RBA did his thing. Like, should have beaten Albert Ramos-Vino, lost probably 3-3, three and 3-4, three, three and four, and just wasn't able to do it, you know, wasn't able to serve that match out, ultimately finish things, finishes things out in the breaker. And then 2-2 two and two over Philip Musilic. I don't know what else to say other than it was a ho-hum performance for RBA, who now overall in the year 27-10, and 27-10 is Roberto Bautista Gut. It's pretty damn good. 27-11, and 11, excuse me, as Tennis Abstract doesn't include his loss to Stefano Tsitsipas in the Mallorca final, but you look for him again, 24-11. and 11, He's played 13 different events this season. He's made the quarterfinals in five of them. And, you know, you look for RBA at his numbers this season. He's holding 83.8% of the time. It's a career high. It's a top 20 number. And, you know, he is one of the nine guys right now to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage on the ATP Tour. He's ranking 30.9% of the time. Second highest number in his career. 4% above his career average. Top 10 number on the ATP Tour this season. He's just so disciplined, and he knows exactly what he wants to do on the court. Now, we also all know what RBA wants to do on the court. He wants to be in that outside corner, inside-out forehand, inside-out forehand, inside-out forehand to open up the inside-in. And if you find the ball to his backhand wing, he's going to go backhand cross to your ad side, backhand cross until it opens up the down the line. He wants to be attacking you from the ad side of the court. The problem is if you try to keep him honest and challenge that on the run forehand, I've said it before, I think the RBA on the run forehand is one of the five best on the ATP Tour. He just hits that ball on a dime cross court on the run. Just, it's exceptional. Can he beat you down the line if you try to sneak forward behind that ball as well? Can extend rallies. He's just, you know, 34 years old, exceptional shape uh, for a guy who is in the back half and certainly, if not through with his prime towards the end of it and yet look RBA is not going anywhere with his title 18th now in the ATP rankings RBA 16th in the points race you look at the yearly ELA ratings RBA currently sitting at 15th again one of nine guys to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage right now Lechechka had his chance Lechechka was the only one with weapons big enough to beat RBA uh, throughout the course of this event but just wasn't quite able to execute when serving for the match, and you give RBA a, a lifeline, he's going to take it. So again, 12th ATP title for RBA. You're talking, you know, when you're over 10 titles, now you're in an elite club where you know fewer than what 80 players in their career have won 10 or more ATP titles, and now you're talking about being one of the 80 best men's players of all time. Which we're not going to do the list, but. I mean, certainly when you look at this era, 2012, when RBA really broke through the top 50 to this past, this past decade, RBA has probably been a top 20 guy of the past decade. I think he's in the conversation, certainly. Who's had a better career, Roberto Bautista Gut or John Isner? At A.L. Gruskin, I actually am fascinated, and I haven't done the research here, and I'm not going to do a long soliloquy on the stats between the two of them, but who do you perceive as having had the better career? John Isner or Roberto Bautista Gut? Please do let me know at A.L. Gruskin. Would love to hear what you all have to say. With that said, uh, certainly a hell of a week for 20-year-old Philip Misalich. A perfect gift for him as he's going to turn 21 here August 8th, coming up in six days. It was first ATP Tour victory, first ATP Tour quarterfinal, first ATP Tour semifinal, first ATP Tour final. Brings him up to a new career high of number 137 in the world. 
Look, you look for Misalic, who won his first challenger title and his only challenger final in March. Uh, excuse me, in May in Zagreb earlier this year. He's a guy who's still trying to find his bearings on the Challenger Tour, and you look for him thus far. I mean, he's had success, 14-8 and eight here on the season. It's his first year of Challengers overall. He's made three different quarterfinals, uh, excuse me, four different quarterfinals, two semifinals, and obviously the title over in Zagreb. Look, that's going to get you into the top 150, and now he's in the ball game. And you look for Misa Lich, who, you know, again, wasn't the most accomplished junior player in the world. Certainly had some success on the junior level, but, you know, it's a fantastic transition for him. And now he's the fifth highest ranked Austrian male player in the world, trailing just Rodionov, Novak, Team, and Ofner. Actually, he would have passed Ofner, wouldn't he, with his result this past week. Hell of a run from the 20-year-old Philip um, Misalich, who, again, you look at his junior success, it's not as though Misalich was a top 10 junior in the world. He was number 63 junior in the world. Yeah, he had some good runs at J2s and you know J4s, but no signature junior slam events, and yet you watch him play. It's just so smooth, and it's just so easy for him to move around the court, manufacture the pace he needs. I thought the serve looked pretty good for him against, Honf- against Honfman, and you know, again, Yannick Honfman served for the match up 6-5 in the third, and Mislich gets the break. Hoffman was also up 4-3 a break in the third, and Mislich gets the break back. It was just a gritty performance from Mislich, who, you know, three-set win over Hoffman, three-set win over the Deuce, Deuce Anlajevic in the quarters, especially given he had lost to Hoffman the week before in qualies in Stad. Nice turnaround for Mislich, who, again, I like a lot of his game. I need to watch a little bit more, but the thing that comes to mind is smooth. And I know I've said that about the Agamemnones and Zepieris of the world. I think if I were to power rank them all, Zepieri number one, Misalich two, Agamemnone three. Just because, I mean, it reminds me of Clement Shidek, which will mean very little to you tour level fans, but just how smooth Clement Shidek, who is now a pro player, but was a standout at the University of Washington this past year, compared to the rest of the college field. It's just like... Misalich quickly adjusts to the speed and then structurally his, you know, the harder you hit, it feels like the better it is for his ground strokes. That would be my takeaway from 21-year-old Philip Misalich is just how rock solid he was all around the board. Sneaky good pace. Uh, It's going to shock me if he doesn't make the top 100 in the next five years for at least a little bit. Just, you know, dip his nose down into it. Although I don't know what the elite weapon is. I don't know if I ever see him cracking the top 50, but, you know, again, can do a lot of things well, as so many different pro players uh, certainly can. But good week for Ramos Vinolas, another semifinal for him. Good week for Yannick Hanfman, who with this result gets back into the top 150, currently sitting at oh, was 139 at the start of the week, drops down to number 151, but has a very winnable match in the Los Cabos main draw this week, of course. Uh, you know, Ramos Vinolas, again, your top litmus test to being a top 25 player on clay courts on the ATP Tour, but... Fairly standard weekend of clay court action in Kitzbühel. And with all that said, again, three ATP events, Umag, Atlanta, Kitzbühel, all delivering the goods. Had to divide our championship recap into two distinct mini-break podcasts. Of course, if you're looking for more coverage on everything that happened in Warsaw, everything that happened in Prague on the women's side, tune in to our mini-break podcast feed. You'll find that episode listed just below this one. Of course, are you wondering what's going on this week on the ATP and WTA Tour? Rest easy. We've got you covered. Nate Walrith going to join me Tuesday evening to break down all the matches 
matches we've seen thus far. We've got five different tour-level events. North American Hardcore Swing officially underway with action at the City Open in D.C., San Jose for the women, Los Cabos for the men. We've also, I believe, got one more WTA Clay Court event happening in Romania. Another fascinating week of action on the ATP and WTA Tours. And, of course, we'll be covering it all here throughout the week at Cracked Rackets, knowing it's our job to keep the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an any job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout-out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. Talk to you all later. Thanks, everyone. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.